Are you ready to level up the podcast for leaders, entrepreneurs, and business with your hosts, Jose Medina and Crystal Garcia? It's time to level up. Hello, hello. We are back with another episode of the Undeniable Level Up podcast. Last week, we discussed extreme ownership. And we heard an amazing speech from former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink. I don't know if that's former if you're, I don't know if you're always a Navy SEAL. Do you know? Always, always a Navy oh, okay. SEAL. okay. <laughs> All right. So we heard from uh, from Navy SEAL Jocko Willink, who hosts an amazing podcast called the Jocko, I think it's called the Jocko Podcast, but it's, it's a great podcast. It was actually one of the first podcasts that I ever listened to. And we'll provide a link in the show notes if you want to go and check him out. Uh, but definitely he, he talks a... Uh, Talks a lot about you know his role as a as a uh, Navy SEAL, and he talks a lot about extreme ownership, which is a book that he wrote, um, as well as the dichotomy of leadership and some other other great books that he's put out that talk about leadership. But today, today we're going to talk about the rules. We're going to talk about why rules are for stupid people. So we all know Doctor House, right? Doctor House from House says rules are just helpful guidelines for stupid people. Would you agree with Dr. House? I do agree with uh, Dr. House uh, for a lot of reasons. And I say that because I believe that if you're following the rules, then you're not taking chances, you're not taking risks. And I think that as an entrepreneur, me being a serial entrepreneur, it's all about taking risks. Right. What about you? I agree. And I think for a lot of people, that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, think so? Yeah, for sure. But we're not talking about all the rules. No, we're not talking about the law. We are not talking about breaking the law. We're talking about breaking the rules. All right. So I was first exposed to the philosophy of rules are for stupid people when I was deployed to Afghanistan during my first tour, uh, 2008-2009, you know, when I was deployed there as part of a mid-team. When I was there, our our team call sign was, uh, was vampires. We were team vampires, and I was vampire four. And we were deployed to the Paktika province. It was a small outpost called Fob Burmel, Forward Operating Base Burmel. And for my vampire brothers out there that may be tuning in, I miss y'all. There are bonds that are forged in combat that just can't be broken by time or distance. Now, a lot of you may be listening to me talking about a mid-team and you may not know what a mid-team is. So let me shed some light on those who are not enlightened. The mission of a MIT team is to serve as combat advisors to the Afghan or Iraqi combat troops so that they can continue the counterinsurgency mission after the United States of America is long and gone. Our job was to build an army. The only problem is that this is a mission that is typically reserved for special ops units. These are typically heavily resourced teams with priority support that allow them not to operate independently and with disregard of the battlefield owner's control, which means they're allowed to break the rules. Okay? Uh, whereas a mid team, on the other hand, we were severely under resourced. We lacked any type of prioritization, and often we fumbled through the battlefield space, struggling to reach higher echelon leadership be- just because we just didn't have the resources that the special ops guys had. We were often outside of comms. 
uh, unable to gain any type of air support and riding solo throughout some of the most treacherous geography that Afghanistan has to offer. Crystal, you talked a little bit about your experience with the mid team during one of our last podcasts. I did. And what was that? What was the topic of that conversation? Well, there was there was some deaths involved, but um, one of the things was that when they left the wire, so there's certain things that you're supposed to do, like checking your comms and firing your weapons to make sure that your weapons are fully operational. And pretty much they didn't do any of those things. So right. when they came under a complex attack, obviously it just so happened that their weapons were malfunctioning and their comms weren't working and they lost two of the three vehicles and they had no self-recovery, you know, self-recovery ability. assets. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I remember we talked about that, that uh, topic uh, during one of our previous discussions. And I said in that discussion that we typically operated that way because mid teams were expected to perform um, certain, certain missions that were typically reserved for special ops guys um, that had different levels of support. Anyways, when we traveled, we often traveled with two MRAPs. That meant uh, it was just three U.S. soldiers per MRAP. Um, that typically included a driver, a tank commander, or a TC, which was typically the highest ranking guy in the vehicle, and then the gunner. And oh yeah, an Afghan interpreter in the back. All right, The team was rank heavy, mostly captains and senior enlisted non-commissioned officers. And occasionally there was a few junior soldiers uh, that were there to either drive or gun or, or whatever the case was. And the mid-team was typically assigned to a Kandak, which is equivalent to a an infantry battalion. And we operated as advisors to that battalion, to that infantry battalion, or Kandak. The Afghan soldiers typically traveled in Hilux trucks, where we traveled in our armored Humvees. Um, and then eventually we traveled in MRAPs. Our team leader was a major, and on our team... Uh, that was Major Mike. Now, I just use Major Mike because I haven't really got his permission to say, his, say you know, just kind of tell his story. Um, but those of you, my, you know, my vampire teams, we know who we're talking about when we're talking about Mike. Um, and this dude was fearless when it came to moving with the Afghans. All right. And there was a mission one time when we were we were out and about and, uh, and an Afghan commander began beating one of his uh, one of his Afghan soldiers with the butt of his AK-47. Uh, he pulled him out of the back of the out of the back of the Hilux truck and he was beating him with the butt of the AK-47. And I knew things weren't going right when I heard Major Mike disconnect off comms and begin to climb out of the armored Humvee. And I said, "Oh no, <laughs> this is not good." And I said, "I said, Mike, stay in the stay in the truck. Don't get out. Don't 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 put yourself in this situation." And he's like, "No, I can't let this happen. I got to stop this." And uh, and he went out there and he confronted the commander that was beating the the, the young Afghan soldier. I was the gunner on this particular mission and I was on a 50 cal machine gun. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, if this turns bad, if, if these guys become aggressive with major Mike, this is going to turn into last Custer stand. <laughs> you know, there's about 400 of those guys and about six of us. This is going to be a nasty, nasty uh, situation for us. Um, but fortunately for us, Mike was able to deescalate the situation and being the phenomenal diplomat that he was, he got everybody back into their trucks, and we, Charlie Mike, we continued the mission. I say all that, and I share this story to set the tone for what happened when I challenged Major Major Mike uh, to a decision that he made. I can't really remember what that decision was. It was so, so long ago. But I do remember telling Mike, we can't do that. It's against the rules. We can't, we can't do that. We can't operate that way, or we can't do that. We can't take that. Um, to whatever it was, he responded to me like he normally did with a kind of a chuckle. And he said, man, rules are for stupid people. 
And that has stayed with me ever since that deployment. And every time I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't do something because there was a rule about it, that thought came into my mind. Hey, man, rules are for super people. Now, let that sink in. Let it sink in the same way that I did when I first heard it. Crystal, what do you think about that pearl of wisdom? That's pretty awesome. That's a pretty awesome story, and I, I really appreciate you sharing that with everybody. I actually, when I was in Haiti with the military, I had a situation right before I left where some Americans had been in a, in a bad vehicle accident, and the facility, which was a makeshift facility, um, was overwhelmed, and we technically were not allowed to leave to go assist at this makeshift facility yeah. And, you know, this was during, you know, after the earthquake had, had happened and everything. And so right. there was, you know, these makeshift tents full of tons of, you know, patients hurt in different degrees. You know, you'd have some infants in a room with somebody who was on life support just because that's how these facilities were. And so when this accident took place, they called us and said, hey, can some of your medics come out here and help us? We're overwhelmed. Right. And... I told the commander, I said, you got to let us come, go out there. You know, we currently, we're getting ready to leave. We have the personnel to do it. Let us go. These are Americans. Let us go. And we had to get permission for that. But, you know, it makes me think about rules are for stupid people because right. it's sad that you would even have to ask or these yeah. are people who need help. You know, and that's a great story. That That is a really great story. And in the same deployment, we had a situation because we were we were embedded with the Afghans. So we spent every day with them. We spent we spent every day training them. We spent every day on missions with them. And after a certain time, even though you're from different cultures and there's different religions and whatnot, um, you do develop a brotherhood with these guys because you're in the fight with them like all them. the time. Yeah. Right. And so there was an incident where we we start we heard um we heard a gun battle, and it was going on in the bazaar. And obviously we knew that the Afghans were in a firefight, right? Because the bazaar was maybe not even a mile away from our base. It was maybe half a mile away from our base. And so we did what we always do being Team Vampire. We mounted up we, in, our, in our two MRAPs <laughs> with our six guys. And we moved out uh, with post haste to go out and support our guys that were in the fight. We got a call over the radio that said, the FOB commander, which was um, a commander from the 173rd Airborne um, that kind of was in charge of that, uh, the, the army portion of that little FOB, he had put out guidance that no one was to leave the FOB. No one was to go out and support these guys. No one had permission to leave the wire. Wow. And so, of course, we were extremely upset by that. And um, my, my MRAP, I was on the 50 cal machine gun. My TC commander was a guy by the name of Casey. We'll call him Casey. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. <laughs> so Casey, Casey was <laughs> Casey was uh, was riding shotgun. He was the tank commander, and my driver was um, was a sergeant first class. I won't say his name either. All right, but when this happened, we immediately went over to the Afghan side of the wire. We had to stop at the gate where the, basically the what is it, the border or the the limit was that right. we were able to push to. We couldn't go beyond that because we didn't, we had been given a direct order not to leave the compound. All right. And behind us was the other MRAP with my other three guys that were in it. Anyways, some of the rounds that were coming towards the, the, the fob where we were at was impacting in the area called the cookoff yard. And the cookoff yard is where we would park 
um, delivery drivers for a certain period of time to make sure that they were they didn't have an ID. So we would basically park them in an area and we would let them sit there for a day or two. And then we would go out and inspect that vehicle and allow them into the fob if they needed to come on the fob. It was called the cookout yard. But there were there were Afghans there and they were all hunkered on the ground because some of the rounds that were coming in their direction was was kind of hitting around where they were. And so I convinced my driver and my TC to at least pull forward and allow our MRAP to block those guys from getting hit. (laughs) You know, hey, we can't go and help them, but can we not like pull forward a little bit and block, you know, block the rounds from hitting these guys? And and so we asked for permission to do that and we got it from our team lead, not from the not from the post commander, but we got it from our team lead. And so yeah, we did push forward and we did put ourselves in a position to be able to block those Afghans from from getting hit from those rounds that were coming um, you know, from the bazaar. And then as we posted up there, uh, we were still too far from the fight. We saw a Hilux pickup truck get hit with an RPG and it flipped over and it had about maybe, I don't know, like maybe seven or eight Afghan soldiers in the back of that Hilux truck. And that truck flipped uh, head over and uh, all those individual Afghan soldiers got thrown from that vehicle into the street. And as soon as we saw that, we responded like we were trained to do and we pushed forward into the fight. So when we pulled up, to the uh, to the Hilux truck. Um, obviously, there was rounds coming over from the firefight that was going on. Our guys were fully engaged in a firefight, and uh, the guys on the ground were obviously very very injured. Uh, my tank commander uh, KC climbed out of the vehicle without regard to himself, and he pushed forward and he started doing first aid on the injured Afghans. Of course, I'm in the 50 cal lane, suppressor fire, making sure I keep him as safe as possible. The other MRAP that was behind us that was still on the FOB when we pulled out um, had joined us and we were in a pretty intense firefight that lasted probably about an hour, hour and a half before we were able to recover everybody and get everybody back into the safety of the base. And I say that to say rules are for stupid people. Well, let me tell you, Pablo Picasso says it best. He said, learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. I love that. (laughs) I love that. Anyways, as I returned from my first deployment uh, to Afghanistan, I had been doing some consulting um, on that FOB for some of the local contractors, and I've been doing it for free. Uh, they were building roads, they were building some guard towers, and they were also building um, you know, some of the buildings on our outposts. And the contractors would bring me their the contracts, and they would have me kind of stu- you know, read them to them and kind of explain to them what was needed in order to execute the contract. And then I would help them kind of put their bids together so they would be be able to put in good bids. When I redeployed back to the U.S., probably about maybe after a month of being back home, I began getting emails from these same contractors and they started asking me for, for help. They wanted me to continue to give them advice on these proposals. And so I began doing that as part of a business. That was the, the birth of my first official business, JLM Consulting. All right. And I provided consulting on government contracts for Afghan construction contractors. And my service was free. All right. I provided a free service and I was only compensated when a contractor was awarded a contract that I had consulted on and helped prepare. And this made me a lot of money, a lot of money very quickly. (laughs) And the reason why that story is relevant, right, that portion of the story is relevant is because at the time, this was a legal gray area. This was a, there wasn't a rule about it that said you couldn't do this, but it was frowned upon. It was like, ah, you really shouldn't do this, all right? But I was able to 
navigate that gray area. I was able to work within that gray area. And because of it, I was able to make a lot of money doing it. And um, eventually, the powers that be created a stipulation, a rule that said you could not do this. And right now, you can't do this. You can't get a commission for a for an award of a proposal. And I used to get 10%. So if a contract was worth a million dollars, that's 100K. So yeah, it's really good. And of course, it's at no risk to the contractor. He don't pay if he don't get the contract. The onus was on me to put out a good product and to make sure that I understood the contract effectively and I was able to get them contracts. And now you have to sign a statement that says no one helped you prepare this and no one is going to be is going to receive a commission off this contract if it's awarded. So now there's a rule against it. And, and actually, when that rule came out, I had to change my business model because I don't break I don't break the law. I just bend the rules. Rules are for stupid people is equivalent to legal opportunism. This is the act of circumnavigating the law, operating in the gray areas between what is black and what is white. Sometimes this can be a moral sticky ground. When someone is using this philosophy to live their lives, they aren't breaking the rules. They're just bending them to the point where it's advantageous. Crystal, have you ever had to bend a rule to capitalize on a situation? So, um, also when I was in Haiti, one of the makeshift facilities that was there needed, needed a lot of help. And I've actually got pictures of, um, when we went and helped them out, but like they probably had about four NICU baby beds with sick or premature babies in them, along with somebody who was innovated in the same room, just because this makeshift facility was just so small and just not equipped to handle what they had. And I got in trouble for taking myself and some volunteers out there to help them. I was told it was against the rules. I would never, and and you know, there's a lot of things too that I didn't know, but I never would have thought that that would have been something that was against the rules. When you have the resources, when the resources aren't being used, why it would be frowned upon to, utilize those resources in a manner where, I mean, we were there for a humanitarian mission, right? Right. And if I were to look up the example of, or the definition of what a humanitarian mission is, to me, that meets that criteria. Right. Well, I guess to my leadership, it didn't meet that criteria. Right. So to go and, and provide that kind of help was, was frowned upon and was told that we were utilizing resources that were not in alignment with our mission. And that's kind of a hard pill to swallow when you're the whole reason that that you got into the field that you're in is to help people. And the whole reason that you're that you are in this location is to provide humanitarian aid. And so definitely a hard pill to swallow when you feel like what you're doing is in support of that mission and you're told it is not. So and I wouldn't say that was capitalizing on a situation, so to speak. Um, no, it really, it really wasn't capitalizing. Your capitalization was on your your moral goodness, right? You know what I'm saying? It was being being altruistic and, and doing what was good for the greater good, right? And even when we, you know, when the when the Americans who got hurt towards the end of that, you know, deployment, when we got permission to be able to go help, um, that too was not supposed to happen. So. That there was definitely some bending of some rules there in order to be able to provide that help, to provide the, you know, that assistance and that support. Right. 
Oh, that's good. Thanks for sharing. I know that was tough. Um, I know we, that, that's very equivalent to the story I just shared with you about our Afghan, uh, you know, counterparts. Um, you know, you build those relationships and when you really care about what you're doing, it's really hard to sit back and allow a rule to stop you from doing what you know is the right thing to do. For sure. In an article titled, Why Entrepreneurs Say Rules Shouldn't Apply to Them, author Derek Ludlow states that entrepreneurs are prone to breaking or ignoring the rules. He calls out both Uber and Airbnb for using rule breaking for creating their multi-billion dollar companies. Uber has been sued by multiple cab companies and taxi commissions around the world saying that they do not follow the rules that apply to taxi cabs. I know recently in California, the state ruled that Uber was misclassifying their drivers as independent contractors instead of as employees in order to avoid increased costs due to their benefit requirements. Additionally, Airbnb has received complaints from hotels for not having to pay hotel tax fees, which drive up costs for hotels versus Airbnbs. Personally, so with the with the company that I run, the main service that we provide is unloading and loading a freight from trailers, shipping containers, trucks, and one of the competitors that we have is illegal labor. And unfortunately for us, you know, when a company uses illegal labor, um, we can't compete with those prices right. <laughs> because they're being paid under the table cash, ridiculously low amounts because as illegal labor, they're not having to provide workers comp insurance, benefits, minimum wage. It's like modern day slavery, honestly. It's not like modern day slavery. It is it modern is. day slavery. Yeah, it is. But we can't compete with that. So as a business, we can't provide rates that you're paying somebody under the table cash for. They're not held to the same standards. So hearing about Uber and Airbnb and you hear like the taxi cab companies talking about Uber, it's can feel like this, the same or the similar type of complaint because our business cannot compete with illegal labor. Yeah, but, but I'm going to challenge you on that. And the reason why is because taxi models are just an old model. The model doesn't work and the model doesn't keep up with technology. And, and there's a big difference between illegal labor where you're paying somebody under minimum wage. You know what I'm saying? You're, right. you're paying them below minimum standards for them to be able to like, like I feel that illegal labor hurts us because it hurts the individuals that are working for less money than what we're paying our guys. You know, and and when when you're talking about like for example taxis, it's just an old model. That's like that's like saying, <laughs> oh, poor poor blockbuster, poor blockbuster. Netflix shouldn't have made all the all the videos online. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't change. Taxi cabs could have could have evolved. It's innovation. It is innovation. You know? um, but I think it would be different. It would just be like a, how a self driving car could be innovation for that. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. 100% now you agree. Ain't got people. So, so I, <laughs> and you know, I've had multiple discussions with different people where we're talking about like the, the ethical, uh, the ethical aspects of the jobs that are lost with, with auto driving vehicles. But guess what? With auto driving vehicles, you know, you no longer um, need to own a car anymore. You know what I'm saying? So, so yeah, there's, there's no job there for you as a driver, but you also don't have to buy a car anymore, so your cost is lower, too. But get creative. Yeah, you have to get creative. But I agree with you in terms of illegal labor. I think that's some BS because that really makes things challenging. And um, and I think that 
anybody that's being put to work, no matter who they are, whether they're illegal or they're not illegal, should get paid a minimum living wage. Just because they're not U.S. citizens, you should not be able to pay them less than what you pay, right? And you shouldn't be able to omit any type of benefits that they're entitled to. You know what I'm saying? Like, I agree with that. Yeah. Wholeheartedly. Do you believe that entrepreneurs should be exempt from rules or allowed to bend rules in order to drive innovation? Me personally, I think yes. I think that businesses should be allowed to, they shouldn't be allowed to break the law, but they should be allowed to bend the rules. And the reason why I say is because that's how we got Uber. <laughs> that's how we got Airbnb. That's how we got, um, that's how we got, you know, Netflix. That's how we, you know what I'm saying? Like all these uh, innovators, we got them all because they were willing to, to think outside the box and, and bend some of the rules. You know what I'm, I'm saying? Gonna, I'm going to give you a good example. Okay. A good example is how they bent the rules in order for companies to be able to mass produce hand sanitizer at a time when wow. we needed hand sanitizer. Wow. <laughs> you took that all the way Boom. to COVID-19. <laughs> Dang. Mic drop. And she walked out the room, guys. <laughs> and not even just that, but, you know, I can tell you in the emergency management field, emergency medical equipment, that's not something that hospitals just have hanging around a ton yeah. of equipment. So, you know, Tesla had talked about creating defibrillators. Guys, that's a big deal. And, you know, a, a defibrillator is a machine, just like a car is a machine. That's a big deal, you know? And if they could mass produce something that the world needs, that's pretty incredible, you throw, know? Yeah, throw that rule in the trash and let's, uh, let's save people. You know what I'm saying? For sure. In the cannabis industry, we have federal regulations that still make cannabis an illegal substance, but states have approved both medicinal and recreational use of marijuana, of cannabis. Oregon just recently opened the floodgates to almost all illegal drugs to include heroin. Should businesses be profiting from a business structure that has traditionally resulted in criminal punishment? I don't know the best answer for that. <laughs> What's your answer? What do you what do you what do you feel in your what does your heart feel? Well what my you, heart feels is when you allow for it to be sold and taxed, your economy benefits greatly. Yeah. So if it's going to be out there, why not have it, you know, generating something positive for the economy? Sure. And I agree with that. Instead of a whole bunch of people locked up. Uh, but what about what about minority communities communities that in the past have uh, notoriously been disenfranchised when it comes to the laws of um, illegal drug use? Uh, we have guys that have went to prison for years and years for an eighth of marijuana or whatever the case is. How do you think that should apply? A lot of those guys are barred from not just barred, but the 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 ability to enter those markets for a majority of minorities is almost non-existent. What are your thoughts on that? Who knows most about these drugs? <laughs> the government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're probably going to edit that out. <laughs> we don't want to be we um, don't want to be banned. <laughs> on a serious note, you know, if if something's legalized, I think that well, one, I'm going to say this. If something's legalized, I think that people who have been punished previously for crimes surrounded by whatever it is that's being legalized that that stuff should all be expunged for starters secondly if you know in the minority communities if those are communities where 
that infusion of jobs and income could be beneficial to the communities as a whole, why not offer programs that allow for them to get into the markets where, you know, maybe they can make an impact, a positive impact. It would improve your communities. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. And, and I would even say uh, that a, a portion of the, of the, uh, the, mar- the profit margins coming from that, se- the, the sales of, of those products should go back to those communities. Did you hear who the biggest cannabis businesses here in California now? No, who? Jay-Z. Oh, say it ain't so. Say it ain't so. Yeah, that's good. Um, he <laughs> He's finally in it legal. That's really good. Yeah, that that's that one's a sticky that one's a sticky topic in in terms of uh be, you know breaking the rules. But you know even states are doing it. States are breaking the rules. They're saying okay, fed, the federal government said no, but we're going to do it anyway because we have we have the authority to do that. You know what I'm saying? So, you know even the states are saying rules are for super people. Do you operate from a seek forgiveness, not permission, or are you a permission seeker when it comes to your entrepreneurial spirit? Me personally, I'm a seek seek forgiveness. If I see an opportunity, I don't know. I think I'm built. I'm built different than most people. If I see, if You're I just see a natural rule breaker, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Actually, there are studies that have been done that have shown uh, correlation between successful entrepreneurs and kids who have gotten in trouble at, as for being rule breakers when they were young. Because you're not scared to take a chance. Yeah, we're not. I'm not scared to take a chance. Um, I I often see opportunity and. I kind of weigh the risks in terms of, you know, is it is it um is it something that's that's worth doing um before I do it. And when I was younger, I had my my um my challenges with the with the legal system. <laughs> and so, I think it's true. I think that's very true. I think that those people that are willing to take risks and are willing to become comfortable in the gray space of right and wrong are the, typically the ones that lead innovation. It's pretty good. What do you, th- what about you? Are you, a, are you a rule follower? Um, a little bit of both actually. Are you? I think, I think I'm kind of, it, it depends, it depends on what it is. Yeah. Um, I'm not always running around breaking all the rules, but, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes I'm also not that, that, that kid growing up who went around and told everybody, no, you know, so-and-so said not to, you know, that right. kid. Yeah. <laughs> the hall monitor. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that your hall pass? That wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. What rules should never be bent or broken from a business and entre- or entrepreneurial perspective? Laws. Laws should not be broken. But marijuana is against the law. Federally. Laws that hurt people. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Laws that hurt people should never be broken, guys. Yeah. For, from a business perspective, I would say that Rules that go against your values. Oh, for sure. Should never be broken. That's a good one. Yeah. I'm going to put that in my pocket. I wish I had a bell so I could ring it every time I have a really ding, good... Ding, 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 ding. I think also, um, you know, rules that violate people's rights should never be broken. I like that. You know what I'm saying? So... so Must have done some homework. No, no. I'm just... I'm just. This is just how I feel. It's just, this is just you. Yeah, this is me just I talking like from the dome. Yeah, I think there there are certain rules that should never be touched that are that are are holy holy rules. Holy rules. Yeah, and they they should never be bent. They should never. But be does broken. that make them the right ones? If they're about taking care of people, then yes. 
people have rights and you know yeah for sure you know one thing that i used to say when i was uh, running a warehouse is is everybody has a right to come to work and feel safe oh for sure you know what i'm saying and yeah and, and i would sure. never make a rule that violated people's ability to feel safe like i would never do that because i think that people should feel, feel safe, safe absolutely work. yeah absolutely. so so i think rules that that um put people in harm um, rules that damage people, rules that hurt others, um, whether it's businesses or people, those should be rules that are that shouldn't exist. And I'll tell you a rule that I think shouldn't exist. All these stores and restaurants that are shut down right now, I think those rules shouldn't exist. That's a that's stifling of capitalism, and I think that it really hurts businesses who are trying to survive and, and create an economy, and you've got them struggling for no reason. We sat in a restaurant today. We sat in a restaurant today in that cold. in order, <laughs> yeah, we had to sit outside. And in order to get into the tent, you had to pass a table. Like you, you're you're not six feet away from everybody and you're sitting in a tented space. What's the difference between being inside and, and practicing social distancing? You want me to tell you the difference? If I'm walking past you and I cough, let me tell you the air that's going to carry that that's outside what? as opposed to inside. Oh, absolutely. I actually think it's worse. It, it, I think it's worse too. I think, and I was cold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is a rule breaker for me. That's it. <laughs> Anyways, so the following three CEOs are known for being rule breakers: Jenny Fleiss, CEO of Jet Black, a dress rental business raised over two hundred million dollars in venture capital without a business plan. Wow. Jeff that's, Rader. That's rule. That's rule number one for a business. Yep. <laughs> a business plan is rule number one. Yep. You know who breaks this rule that I know? Sage. Sage breaks this rule. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Rader, CEO of Harry's Men's Grooming Product. They started in 2013 with no capital and no factories and grew their business as the demand grew. Wow. Then there's Payal Katakia, CEO of ClassPass, launched her company, a platform that allows members to book fitness classes before she had the platform built. Wow. Wow. You're talking about rule breakers. The following three companies got ahead by breaking the rules. Airbnb. In order to grow supply for their service, they turned to Craigslist. They contacted people on Craigslist and had them list their homes on Airbnb in order to get homes listed on, on their platform. Smart. Tom's a shoe seller sold shoes from their residential apartment and they would hide the business from the landlady. And whenever she would come, they would they would actually would practice drills of how to hide the business whenever she came to walk through the apartment. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, Dropbox sold their sold their product before they were done building it in order to test out the market. Wow. Yeah. Dan Pierce from Single Dad Laughing says most rules are made by people with no authority who want to control and limit you from reaching your true potential. Ignore them, break their rules, and wave at them as you soar past them to greatness. Yeah, definitely wave at them as you soar to greatness. It's time to level up and stop allowing yourself to be constrained by the boxes that have been designed to keep business owners, entrepreneurs, and leaders from reaching greatness. Anyone who has achieved significant success has done so by bending and occasionally breaking a rule or two. How do you call yourself an out-of-the-box thinker if you've always been too afraid to get out of the box? If you're ready to start breaking some rules and getting ahead, I encourage you to read the book, How to Succeed in Business by Breaking All the Rules, A Plan for Entrepreneurs by Dan S. Kennedy. 
This book gives you the understanding of how to become comfortable in the gray in order to climb out of the red and stay in the black. It's time to stop letting rules limit your ability to achieve success. 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 success.